Welcome everyone, this is Coaching in Session. My name is Michael Reardon and I am going to be your mindset coach today. And today we're gonna to be talking about the guide to effective parenting. Now this guide was something that I wanted to do for quite a bit because now being a parent, I can see just how much parents don't know about kids. I mean, I'm doing a great job not to pat myself on the back, but I am confident in my skills and my knowledge of childhood development and parenting just from my history of being a teacher, working with kids for so long, and seeing parents firsthand succeed and fail. So today I'm going to be sharing with you a guide on how to be an effective parent. Now this guide is going to be something that you can use, utilize, leverage, and grow from there. But this is not going to be the all end all be all. This is something that's going to be maybe a reminder, maybe an eye-opening experience for you where you start to see, well, maybe I should adjust my parenting. Maybe I should adjust how I'm doing things. At the end of it, we are going to wrap everything up because I know there's a lot of issues in the world. There's an epidemic of broken household, single mothers, fathers not wanting to be in the picture. I understand that's happening. And we do have to look at that too. So I'm going to first just start off what a parent needs to know to raise effective children. And then we can start to look at some of the more dicey areas of parenting because no parenting experience is going to be perfect. There's going to be ups and downs, failures, learning lessons along the way, but we can adjust. And this guide right here is going to give you a step ahead of the crowd. You can be a better parent today just from listening to this guide, following these steps. So let's begin to look at the ultimate guide to effective parenting, building stronger connections with your children. As we begin to go down this process of this guide, I want you to take some notes, mental notes, physical notes, whatever it is, and begin to implement that in some area of your life. I want you to look at it in the lens of your own life. Maybe you can look at it in the lens of someone else, but if you are a parent, understand these steps. And if you are not a parent, learn about these steps. So when you become a parent, if you want to be, you're going to be a step ahead again. This is about being a step ahead, being relevant, and being potent in the sense of parenthood and being potent in the sense of knowledge. Because when we get into step number one, step number one is going to be helping us understand that we need communication. Now, communication is something that many people lack. It is something that people don't understand is a key component in how we interact with each other. Now, if I communicated with everyone on this podcast, and let's say I was very rude. There's a restaurant in Las Vegas. They're very rude to their people on purpose. I think it's called Dick's or something like that. It might be called something different, but that is what they want to ensue, right? This very rude customer service and people go there for the thrill of it. Yet, most people don't want to be spoken to like that in their day-to-day lives. You don't want someone to come yell at you and say, why are you doing it this way? But yet, parents do it all the time. Hey, I told you to take out the garbage. Why are you not listening, right? Communication is trying to understand what's going on. So there has to be aspects to open communication. You have to be able to listen. You have to be able to understand what's going on because you might not truly know what's happening in their mind. So you do have to learn how to set up communication. Communication is not one of those things where, oh, I spoke to them yesterday. Oh, I spoke to them on their birthday. Oh, I'm going to speak to them on the weekend. I'm so busy with work. I understand that. As parents, we are going to be busy. But we do have to know and develop ways to open up communication. There's a reason why a teenager is not going to talk to you because you have at some point told them you're too busy to talk to them. If you develop a system or a process where you're like, this is our communication time. I know you might not want to communicate, but you're going to participate. And from there, they learn. They might not like it in the beginning, but they learn to adjust. It's going to be more difficult if you have teenagers and you have to implement the system. If you have kids, implement the system now. For example, at our house, there's no phones at the table. We get to talk to each other. Now, you might not want to talk. I understand that. But it is an open area for communication. 
You don't have to tell me what went on in your life, what's going on in your life, what went on in your day. If you passed or you failed, you don't have to do anything like that. We can simply have a conversation. Now, the conversation might be, all right, we need to have a little meeting about where we're going for a vacation this year, or we need to have a meeting on who's going to be walking the dog after we get done with dinner. It's communication. We set that time apart because if I did it in front of a TV, people are going to be like, oh, yeah, okay, sure, right? It's going in one ear and out the other. So communication is key. Step number one, learn how to be an effective communicator, know when to communicate and how to communicate. If you are struggling with communication, I recommend getting a coach, getting someone who's really good at communicating with the children and learning from them. Step number two, setting boundaries. Now, this is going to be one of the most difficult things for parents, I believe, because they think that a kid is a kid and a kid should only be doing what kids are supposed to be doing. However, a kid today is very different than a kid in the past. We have all of these phones, we have all of these electronics, we have all of these things that we didn't have maybe growing up. And so we need to understand that we might set limits, especially for like screen time, and we might set like expectations for what they have to do. But we cannot say this is a strict thing because we have to offer some flexibility with modern times. And this is going to stand this test of time because what I say today has to be relevant in a year, in two years, and in 10 years. Because I might say, all right, no more than an hour screen time a day. And that is true today. Today, there should be no more than one hour of screen time. If your kid has more than one hour of screen time, it's actually going to have a negative effect on their mindset and their brain. They're not going to learn how to emotionally regulate because they're going to be using technology as their regulation tool. That's why so many teens today, they feel so connected to their phone and their device because that is what they're aspiring to have. It feels like that's what they lack if they don't have it. It's almost like a fish out of water. So we set the boundaries, but we do it in a healthy way and we do it in a way that's structured for them because they might be going through a different time. And as we grew up, we grew up very different. We were outside riding our bikes until the lights came on and our parents started yelling at us, come in and eat dinner and stuff like that. And I'm over here trying to chase the ice cream truck. So we need to figure out the boundaries that we set. They have to be conducive and relevant to the time. Now, you get to create rules for your house. You get to create expectations for your children. There's nothing wrong with that. Understand that when you give those rules and those expectations, understand that it doesn't limit them. I work a lot on limiting beliefs. Parents and teachers are the number one factor for limiting beliefs, and the third factor is ourself. So in order to not create that limiting belief in children, we do have to understand that the boundaries can be pushed, can be passed, can be surpassed, whatever, because setting boundaries in the sense of limits will give you a limited mindset and that is what we aim to annihilate here at Revenant Concepts. Then we get into positive reinforcement. Positive reinforcement is just simply saying, okay, my job as a parent is to make sure that not only do I help them succeed, but I allow them to fail. This is one of the most important things that a parent can do. There is no participation trophies in this household, and for good reason. Positive reinforcement is not telling them always good stuff. It's not saying, oh, Billy, you know, you did so good today and Billy did a really bad job. Billy was just not doing what he needed to do. A teacher is not going to say, hey, Billy, you did a really good job today in school and Billy was flipping out, flipping desks. That is not positive reinforcement. That is doing the opposite. It's negative reinforcement. You're reinforcing negative behavior. So in order to get more positive reinforcement, we need to look at it in the sense of not only rewarding them for when they do good, but helping them when they do bad. Because we think that, oh, I'm only going to praise them when they do good. I'm not saying that if they're, you know, flipping over sofas and stuff like that in your house, you should give them an ice cream or a lollipop. I don't believe that. But there is an aspect to it. You have to encourage positive behavior not negative behavior. If we look back at step number one, communication. 
Why is communication so critical? Because this is going to foster a moment right here where you could say, hey, what went on? That was not necessarily something good. We need to learn how to adjust it. We are being positive. We are praising them for things that they're doing, but then we're also talking to them and communicating on things that might need some help, might need some adjusting. So we do it. We create that environment for them. If you're a parent who just kind of yells at kids and just like, hey, why are you doing this and blah, 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 that's not positive reinforcement. You're better off trying to figure out, well, why did you do that? Okay, well, in this household, we don't do that. The reason why is because of this. That creates positive reinforcement. It's setting expectations, what we just talked about, but then it's also saying that this right here is not a good thing, okay? But we did it in a way that builds them up, not breaks them down. And many kids today are broken because parents don't know how to give positive reinforcement. A kid comes home and they have an A plus on their test. Oh, look, mom, I got an A plus on my test. I'm so smart. And the parent falls into the trap. Oh, wow, you're so smart. You have an A plus. Wow, that's beautiful. Nice job. That's one of the worst things you can do as a parent or as a teacher. You're so smart. You got an A plus. So if you don't get an A plus, are you dumb? If you get a C, are you dumb? Have you failed? So you, do you see what those words just did? You were being positive, you thought, but many parents don't realize that a small thing like that can change your mindset, can create limits in your mind. Instead, if they bring you home an A plus, you should actually do this. Oh, before we start to look at your test, I just want to let you know that I was thinking about you today at work. And I just wanted to say, like, I was just thinking about all the moments and how you grew up and you're just so smart and you are a person that, you know, I'm just so happy is around me. And you start to talk about that positive things about them. And you didn't even look at the test yet. You didn't look at the grade. You don't look at the score. You don't know yet. So what happens is if they do good, they're going to speak to you. And even if they do bad, they're going to speak to you. Because if you look at the test, and you got a maybe an 85. Whoa, 85 is pretty good. Now, we can make some improvements, but even if you got a 70, I would still love you the same because this score doesn't matter. You matter to me. So they bring home a 60, say the same thing. Okay, well, we got some right. <laughs> and it's it's just so funny because parents, you know, like they look at these scores that these schools give and I mean, the score is just going to be your relative society score of how well you're going to rate in society. So if you do really good in school, you might do terrible in the real world. Maybe not. But there is a correlation to people who don't do well on testing for people who are going off and being entrepreneurs and starting their own million dollar companies. There is a reason for that. Schools are not meant to build leaders. They're meant to build workers. So if you want to build a worker, Tell them they got an A plus and the A plus is the standard. But if you want to build a leader, tell them that regardless of the score they get, they can be whatever they want to be in their world, their life. They get to choose that. So positive reinforcement comes in many different ways and is probably one of the biggest aspects in our steps today. Then we get into disciplining effectively. Here in Texas, corporal punishment is possible meaning you can hit your kid and there's going to be no repercussions as long as you don't hit them in the head and as long as you don't make them bleed, I believe. I think those are the rules. If you want, you can take them to Walmart, bring them in the aisle and light them up, all right? Hit them in the booty as much as you want. The cop will come maybe, you know, gets called or whatever, trial abuse or whatever. Cop is going to look and say, what do you want me to do? Texas can do corporal punishment. But just because you can hit your kid, should you hit your kid? This is going to be one of those aspects that is going to be depending on your parenting style. My mom loved to hit us when we were younger. You know, she would always get the changlata and she would just be, you know, like swinging it and we had to be dodging it. And she's really good. I remember one time I was going up the stairs and I was trying to dodge it and she got me. She did threw it like a homing missile. That's the Spanish in her, the Puerto Rican in her. I did so much better with that type of discipline from her. And my dad, he never laid a hand on me. Now, he might have like took my hand and maybe like pushed my hand away, said no, you know, 
But that was enough for him. He didn't have to hit me because he got hit when he was growing up, but he didn't have a father. He had a mother. The mother would hit him. So I find that women might hit a little bit more, even though we look at history like Michael Jackson, his father was very abusive and would hit and the mother would console. So it was almost like a good cop, bad cop when disciplining your child. I will say that you can be gentle, you can be positive, and you can get the same results. But sometimes a good smack on the booty can be what a child needs. Not saying that if you're a teacher, you should just hit a kid because they did the wrong thing. That is the parent's role and it's the sole parent role. And if you see a parent with a rambunctious kid, it's not your role to say that that parent should hit their child. The parent gets to choose if they want to discipline their child with uh, punishment as physical punishment or discipline them in the sense of, I'm going to take your Game Boy away. Which one is more effective? You have to figure out what works for that child. Now, we don't want them to be like, I hate you all the time. Every time you try to discipline them, you want to help them understand. And that's why communication is important. When you're disciplining them, you have to give them an understanding of why they are being disciplined or why they're being reprimanded, whatever it is. So you have to teach them the lesson, but they also have to understand the lesson. So if they cannot comprehend what they just did wrong, then you need to enforce that. If my kid Let's say they goes into the kitchen or something like that, and they try to go to the stove. And I say, the stove is hot. And I keep saying, the stove is hot. The stove is hot. I have two choices. I can let them get burned, or I can say, the stove is hot, hit them in the butt, move on. All right? I told you this many times. If I have to tell you this many times, it's going to stick with you, maybe with pain. Many people in life, they don't learn from their uh, successes. They learn from their failures. So we learn from our mistakes more so readily. More people take action. I have more clients who come to me with hardship than they do with positive lives. Meaning if you have a positive life right now, everything is going perfect for you. I have very few of those clients. People do come to me where they have that perfect life because they want to talk. They want to get some feedback and we begin to have a dialogue. That's a different conversation. But for many people, they're coming to me with broken mindsets, broken levels of, of positivity. We have to work on that. So when you're trying to discipline someone, they have to understand what's truly going on. Sometimes they need that negativity in order to be disciplined effectively, but sometimes you can communicate with them if they're in the right mindset, if they have all of the developmental tools, meaning you're not going to tell a four-year-old to not get in your car and start the car. Most likely, that's not going to be a conversation you're going to have with them. If it is, oh man, you probably got your hands cut out for you. But we begin to have conversations at proper time. So if you see that they're navigating towards something, you begin that learning lesson. You're not going to just discipline them because you want to discipline them. You discipline them when you have to discipline them. Other than that, it's going to be communication and education comes from that. Then we get into emotional intelligence and oh boy, this is something that I've talked about on the podcast before. Emotional intelligence from zero to seven. I'm going to give you a secret and it doesn't matter about the gender of who does it, but a child needs it. Typically, the mother is going to take this role and the father is going to take the more of the backseat approach when it comes to emotional intelligence because studies have shown and statistics have shown again and again that women are more emotional than men for rightful fact too, because the woman is the one carrying the child for nine months and it's a selfless act, right? Her body changes, her mind changes. And so her emotional intelligence level is going to be more in line of, I want to make sure that I help this child be the best person they can be, they grow up into the best person they can be. I'm going to love this child no matter what, because they went through the pain of labor and all the effort to make sure this child comes to the world. It's almost like their role instinctually, it's not their role, instinctually is their role to make sure that this child is emotionally intelligent. Now, in my marriage, it's very interesting because my wife would be sometimes very tough on our child and she says, you know what, like, you know, grow up, be a boy or something like that. Nothing wrong with that, right? 
is tough love. But from zero to seven, emotional intelligence is going to be more in line of helping him understand his emotion, understand that he can go to her if there's any um, emotional needs he needs met, if he's crying or something like that. Now, if he's fake crying, don't pick him up. But if something happens and he's truly crying, pick him up. Show him that you love him. Show him that you care again and again and again. That's going to build a more emotionally sound child. For a child who doesn't have this, they're going to develop psychological issues, whether it be personal or things that can be outright experienced in the world, right? Your psychosis is, your schizophrenics, those right there happen because of a lack of emotion growing up. We have studies of orphanages done of, you know, loving kids and not loving kids and what would happen to kids. One third of kids who weren't loved passed away because they didn't have the connection of human connection. So they were like, what was the point of life? So they would pass away. Then the two thirds, they came out messed up. So we have to look at emotional intelligence in the sense of, I'm going to teach you how to regulate your emotions, navigate through your emotions. But then after seven, there's a shift. And that's where the father should come in. But the father can be there in the first seven years. He should be there helping them go through, navigate through their emotions too. Like I said, statistically, women do it better. But I've seen men do it really well too. Who should do it more? It doesn't matter. But there should be a balance. If you find that your partner is being more tough, then you should be a little bit more emotional, right? You should teach them about those emotions and navigate them through that. They're going to go through different phases in their life. There's nothing wrong with going through those phases with them, helping them understand those phases. And then after you teach them everything they need to know how to regulate their emotions themselves, then they can come to you if they want to. They can express to others if they want to but they now have a solid foundation. Again, emotional intelligence is the foundation you build your life upon, not what you make at the top of the windows of the house and the roof. Many people think, oh, adults should learn how to be emotionally intelligent. If you are an adult and you did not get your emotional intelligence, the only thing you need to do to fix this is to get a coach, get a therapist, and to talk to them about any unresolved emotions from your childhood. From there, you begin to fix the cracks in the foundation, right? So if you ever heard about a home having a crack foundation or a slope foundation, there is a way to fix it. There is a way to repair the emotional intelligence that didn't happen in an adult when they were younger. But it's not to give them emotional intelligence, it's to fix the emotional intelligence they should have had. People don't understand this. They think that an adult should just be readily talking about their feelings and emotions. They shouldn't. You should be able to express yourself. You should be able to express yourself in a meaningful way. But many people are going to be more reserved. Why? Because that is our culture. So we learn how to keep our emotions inside. We learn how to not express yourself fully. If you are a person having a hard time with this, I recommend speaking to a psychologist, speaking to a therapist, and then looking at what happened from zero to seven. There's a reason why therapists start there because they're trying to fill in the cracks. But then once you get out of that, then you just might have to look at a little bit of your history growing up and then how that was correlating to everything that happened in your past when you were a child and there you should be fixed. It's not something that, oh, I need to go talk to my partner or my spouse about certain things. This is about raising effective children. It is easier to make sure a child is not broken than to repair a broken adult, okay? It's more difficult to repair broken adults than it is to raise effective and happy children. So emotional intelligence from age zero to seven, that right there can be done by both parents. It doesn't have to be done solely by the mother, but it does have to be regulated in the sense of you're doing what needs to be done, helping the child understand emotions, work through emotions, navigate through emotions, And then from eight plus, that's when you teach them how to let that switch come on. We won't talk about it today, maybe another episode, but that switch is something that I teach many men to teach their children because it's a life skill that we need. But raising a child with emotional intelligence is what you need from zero to seven rather than giving them a switch at age four or five. They don't need it until they're about eight. 
Then we get into step number six, quality time together. Now, quality time is going to be relative to what you believe. You might think quality time is sitting on the sofa, watching some movies together. You might think quality time is going out to the park on the weekends. You might think quality time is going on vacations every single year, whatever quality time means for you. Quality time can mean that I'm going to go to all of their school events. You're spending time with them. I talked about this early on. Many parents think that spending money is going to create quality time. Okay, well, a kid does not care about your money. A kid does not care about how much money you have. They might see that someone else has a nicer car, a nicer home, and they might say, well, why does this person have a nicer home or a nicer car? They can say that, but that doesn't mean that, oh, the reason why is because I'm trying to give you the best life and I'm trying to do the best I can. Because those parents might be throwing money at their kid and the kid is like, you know, playing all these video games and doing all this stuff, not having time with their parents. And maybe that's what they want. And the only thing you can afford is time with them, going to the park, talking to them, playing with them, whatever it is. You learn quality time is going to trump spending money on them. And I believe almost any parent who has went through the parenting process and now their kids are grown, they're going to say that quality time is what you need, not spending money on them. Kids don't care how much money you spend on them. They care how much time you are going to spend with them. And so if you're present when you're with them, it's the secret, being present, not on your phone, not, you know, doing what you have to do. Sometimes my son will come into the office and I'm like, can I help you? And he can't speak yet. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then we, I have toys in the office and it's a mess sometimes. They're toys that are like math toys. They're pattern toys. It's not like a little button toy that we keep in the playpen in, in his play area. These are learning toys. So when he comes into the office, he knows he's going to learn. He's going to play with these toys that are specific to the office. You might ask, well, why do I do that? It's because I don't mind educating. I don't mind spending quality time with him. I don't mind putting my work on hold for a minute and saying, you know what? Let me spend some time with him. Because I understand as a parent, I understand as a human, that there's going to be a time when he's going to live his own life and he might not call me and he might not want to hang out with me and he might not want to do things with me, but today he does. So I should focus on spending that time with him when he does because he's going to remember that and he's going to be more happy when he spends time with me later on. There's an interesting statistic by the age of 12, depending, you have already spent 75% of the time you will have ever spent with your child. By the age of 12, you would have spent 75% of the time you will have ever spent with your child. That's a crazy number. By the time they're 18, you're up to 90 to 95% of the time you will have ever spent with your child. Now, if that doesn't open up your heart as a parent, understand that you have the first 12 years to be immersed in your life and it's going to be difficult and it starts to become a little bit more easier even though you're navigating through those harder parts, teenage years, hormones, but it becomes less and eventually it becomes non-existent. It becomes a text on Christmas, a call here and there on your birthday, but even after that, it starts to go downhill. Now, if you can learn how to cultivate quality time together, it's going to be more pronounced later on. So you have to figure out what that means for you, how to create quality time, and then make that a habit. So when they're older, they can do it with their kids and they can also do it with you still. Then we get into step number seven, nurturing independence. This one is an easy one. We're just looking at the aspect of we want them to be individual. We give them all the tools they need to be self-sufficient, but we do have to train them in order to be independent. We're not going to just tell kids like, hey, you need to be independent and you need to learn how to do it. Good luck, right? We train them, right? We teach them from a young age how to eat, how to get something from the fridge, and then eventually they become independent. You might think that this is a process that, oh, this is a very tough process and this is a, maybe one of the most difficult parts of parenting, but it's probably maybe the most rewarding parts of parenting. because. 
when you start to see your child walk for the first time and you were carrying them all the time, that right there is independence. They don't need you anymore to walk. Eventually, you might have to pick them up, but they're doing it themselves. Eventually, you know, you making their food and prepping their food. Now they're going to go in the fridge and say, Mom, there's no food, or Dad, there's no food in the fridge. Okay, there probably is. They're just not looking well enough, or they don't know how to cook. They become more independent. And it's one of those things like it's an eye opening experience for parents. So allow them to experiment, allow them to do different things. Because in the beginning, they're going to be fully dependent on you, but it happens so quickly and they get their dependence so quickly. So teach them how to be independent, but remember to savor the moments when they are being dependent on you. Then we get into step eight, healthy lifestyle. I always say, and this is going to be an unpopular belief, if you have an unhealthy child, it is because of parents who do not know how to be healthy themselves. If you have a child who is doing the right thing, eating the right foods, the right weights, then you probably have parents who say, you know what, I know what it is to be healthy. If you see a kid who's overweight, obese, it's because the parents have that lifestyle. They're eating their fried chicken and their mashed potatoes every single night. They're sitting on the sofa eating pizza and ice cream and things along those lines. And the kid is learning that lifestyle. Now, if a kid is living in that lifestyle, it doesn't mean they have to follow in the parents' footsteps, but most often they're going to replicate it in some areas of their life. So we do have to learn how to create nutritious meals, regular physical activity, all of those different things. Give them play dates, take them to the playground. Don't just sit inside. Don't just watch TV all day or be on the phone all day. It's one of those things where a parent has to set some boundaries. All right. Well, we can't eat Cheetos all the time. We need to eat our vegetables. We can't just stay up all night and watch TV. We have to get our good rest. We have to sleep. So healthy lifestyle is going to be dependent on the expectations and the rules set by the parent. And if the parent has a healthy lifestyle themselves, then we get into step number nine, education and learning. This is something I specialize in and helping parents that is important to educate and teach your child at all ages. It doesn't matter if they're one month or if they're going to be 21 years old. We have to educate our children. They're always going to be learning. And it is our job, our duty to prepare them for whatever they have to face in life. So if emotional intelligence is helping them learn their emotional balance at an early age, how can we teach them how to do accounting? Or how can we teach them to do math or reading or writing or whatever? That's education and teaching. So we need to teach them and we need to give them the tools to do that. We send them to the best schools. We send them to the best coaches and we give them all the resources that they need in order to come out ahead, right? So we have to foster that. We have to make them curious. We have to help them understand that the work that they're doing might not be something they use for the rest of their life, especially like math, like Y equals MC squared. You might never use that in your life. Maybe now I'm just reminding you of like, why do you even learn that? But we are teaching them because we want them to understand that there's going to be things that you're going to utilize and things that you're not going to utilize. But at the end of the day, they're tooled for the toolbox. And you are better off having those tools and not needing them than needing them and not having them. So we have to support them in all of their learning endeavors. And that includes training, sports, extracurricular activities, swimming, soccer, whatever sport, teaching them different things. Education can be saying, hey, this is how you feed a dog. This is how you walk a dog. This is how you wash a dog. It might not seem like you're educating them, but you're training them. I remember when I had my first dog and I had to like wash them and do things. I can't tell you how much I learned from when I got my dog as an adult. Night and day, number one. But I learned when I was young. It wasn't, oh, let me get a dog when I'm older and now I have a rambunctious dog that's not disciplined. My dog is so well behaved. It's like, oh my God, best dog ever. It's going to be hard to, you know, trump her when she's gone. For now, I have her. For now, I have this moment with her and I have this life with her and dogs teach you how to love quickly. But in order to love a dog and maybe even a child fully, you do have to have a level of comprehension between the two. So understanding them, and it comes from education. Most people get rid of their dogs because the dog is not being obedient. 
And most people don't want to be a parent to their kid because their kid is not doing the right thing. When was the last time you educated them? When was the last time you taught them? When was the last time you disciplined them in a way of educating them rather than reprimanding them? Many parents are going to reprimand before they educate. Educate before you discipline. Then we get into step number 10, technology and screen time. We talked about this on one of our earlier steps. It's important to set rules and expectations, but again, you only want to have an hour of technology a day, typically. Now, that might change in the future from when this podcast airs, but what I can say is that you do want to understand that technology is a very important part in our upbringing of our children today. And they need it in order to be relevant in the adult world, the real world. So we want them to be technology savvy, but then we also don't want them to be a technology nut where they're looking at their phone all day like us. So you might be attached to your phone doing emails and business stuff and maybe on YouTube and TikToks and stuff like that's a waste of time. But you want to understand that technology can be something that you say, you know what? I don't need it right now. I'm not going to do my emails right now. I'm going to focus on my family. I'm going to do something like this. And this is something that you have to instill in them. Also, that's why I said earlier on, we have a rule at the table. There's no phones in the car. There's no phones. And it's because this is time to foster communication, not technology. If you have some downtime and I'm in the office and maybe the wife's at work and you have nothing else to do, read a book. But maybe you read a book already that day. Maybe you want to go to a website and watch a motivational video or get a different perspective on a blog or something along those lines. That can be learning. That can be your screen time, not just playing video games all day, not just watching movies all day. It can be an aspect of growing and development, but it should be something that's throttled and encouraged to do in a positive way rather than in a negative way. Because if you do it in a negative way early on, they're going to compound it when they're adult. And when they have problems and they have a hard day at work, they're going to come home and sit down on the sofa and watch TV because that's how they learn how to regulate, not to navigate this technology and the screen time in a positive way. And then we get into step number 11, building resilience. So this is going to be solving a lot of the problems that we are facing in our world today. So many kids are getting their participation trophies, as I said. Many people don't want to fail. Many people don't want to get hurt. I mean, there's probably scars on my body from when I was a kid doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. Many parents today are like, oh, I don't want my kid to get hurt. Why? You did it. So why are you trying to protect them? Let them learn. Learn to build resilience. And so you have to let them do things in a way that to us is dangerous, but to them is safe. So we have to foster this sense of curiosity in them, but we do have to make sure we don't get in the way, but we do have to give them the safe environment. So if they're climbing on a sofa, maybe throw some blankets or some pillows on the floor if they fall over. I don't want them to fall over. I don't want them to get hurt, but they do have to learn. If they're climbing on the bed or something like that and they fall off the bed, yeah, they're going to get hurt. They're going to bump their head maybe. You pick them up, you love them, you console them, and they learn, oh, maybe I shouldn't do that anymore, or I should be more safe in how I do things. So we do have to help them build resilience, not just protect them from all the harm and all of the problems in the world. They have to go through it themselves. You learn from your mistakes. You learn from the tough moments. You don't learn from everything being good, all right? There's a difference between good and bad, yin and yang. You cannot appreciate the good if you never had any bad or if you don't have much bad. Now, typically in life, you want to have more good than bad, but those bad moments help you appreciate those good moments so much more. So being resilient is going to require you to look at both, not just the good, but also the bad and helping them understand the difference also. Then we get into step number 12, maybe, again, one of the most important ones a parent can do, and that's being a role model. If you are overweight and you're telling your kids to be healthy, your kids are going to look at you like, what? You're not even being that person, right? You're not walking the walk and talking the talk. I don't want people to come work with me if they don't see my life in at least somewhat order. Now, I understand life can be chaotic. I understand that there's going to be ups and downs in life. I'm going to understand that there's going to be moments in my life that might not be the best moments that I want to show the world. At least in those moments, 
I can show you that I'm resilient. At least in those moments, I can understand you that I'm maybe courageous and building up toward confidence, that I'm a go-getter, that regardless of what happens, I'm going to stand back up. So that right there is being a role model for my clients in the world. But as a parent, you do have to understand that being a role model is more than just simply saying, hey, you know, do this, do that. You have to show them. And sometimes our actions are going to be replicated by our children. So if you're always on the phone and you're like looking at your phone and you're talking on the phone all the time, you're going to see that they're doing that same thing. They're going to use you as a role model. Just the other day, as I said, I have toys in the office. And so he put all the toys right by my seat. And I'm like, I'm trying to get some work done. I moved the toys with my foot. Well, guess what? He learned, let me kick the toys. He's one. So he starts kicking the toys and I'm like, oh, got to make sure I'm paying attention to what I'm showing him. I'm the role model here. So if I move toys with my feet, he thinks that he should move toys with his feet. And so it happened once. I saw it happen. Then I said, let me stop it. And so nicked it in the butt very quickly. But my wife, on the other hand, she does these things. It's like she doesn't even realize he's paying attention to her. And so she's doing these things like, hey, I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And then he's replicating. And I'm like, why, why are we teaching him this? But it's a process. So we learn through experience that we are role models as parents. It is, again, one of those learning lessons we have to experience. And that is why I'm creating this guide for parents. Because not every parent is going to know how to be a role model from day one, especially if you don't have the background of teaching. If you have worked with children in your life, you're not going to know many of these different things that I have learned and experienced. So role model, big one. Being an example, big one. All right. Walk the walk and talk the talk. And then also give them the best experiences that you can give them by you being the best experience for them to see. Then we have to look at handling challenges. And this is going to be something that you might deal with at any age. It doesn't necessarily matter about age. A lot of parents start to experience this around teenager years when hormones are kicking in, their kids are not doing the right thing. They're being rebellious. They're always on their phone. They're going on websites they're not supposed to. And you have to figure out, well, this is a challenge, right? Well, typically how you get through challenges as a family is as a family, meaning you work together, meaning you navigate together, meaning you can speak with one another. And at the end of the day, you are better because of it. You don't want to handle challenges by just simply yelling at them or taking away something. Oh, you're grounded. Again, that is not fostering positive reinforcement. That's negative reinforcement, which again, is not going to handle the challenge. It's just going to amplify the challenge. So we need to learn how to handle challenges in an effective way. My advice when you're trying to handle challenges in an effective way, you want to have good communication, number one. But then number two, you need to have a plan of action. If a kid does something wrong at school, the teacher is going to say, don't do that. If the kid keeps on doing that, the kid goes to the principal. Principal is probably going to speak to them. Maybe the parent has to be called in for a meeting. At that point, now the kid is going to be like, oh, you know, the reason why this was happening was because this person is bullying me. And then it's a whole problem, right? There's a lot of challenge behind that one small action of being sent to the principal. So handling challenges can be multi-layered. You have to begin at one end and then you begin to work through it. Just like cleaning your room, just like a process of building something, you start with one piece, one area. Handling the challenge is also the same thing. Many parents, they see the whole problem, they want to solve all the problem. But sometimes you have to look at it in the sense of what can I do right now? What's a small piece I can work on today? And then you begin that process, you begin that fixing of it. Handling the challenge begins with a piece-by-piece approach. Just like building a puzzle, you are trying to fix what's going on, what's going incorrectly maybe at the moment, and then you adjust. Give them healthy options rather than no options. And then we get into step number 14, self-care for the parents. So you do have to understand that being a parent is a 24-7 job. It is not something that is an easy job. 
that is why sometimes I get not upset, but like when people, you know, like these feminists are coming on and they're like, you know, I'm a boss babe and I don't want to be a stay at home mom and things like that. I don't think they understand how much work it is to be a stay at home mom. I understand that your business might be a very successful business, but for you to belittle other women because they decided to have a family, or maybe even at a later age, it doesn't necessarily matter the age, but to belittle them because you want to be a boss babe and you want to go out and make money and have a career first, family second, there's nothing wrong with that. But we do have to look at it in the sense of neither role is more important than the other. If you want to be a career person, that's fine. Be a career person. You want to be a stay-at-home mom, that's fine. Be a stay-at-home mom. But no role is superior. No role is inferior. Meaning, if you are a stay-at-home mom, you are no less than the career woman who's working off making millions of dollars. To be honest, most men will probably want the woman who's a stay-at-home wife than the career woman. That's a different podcast episode. But we do have to look at the self-care for parents. And the reason why I harp on wives that stay at home and the reason why I harp on maybe single moms is because they are putting themselves all out there, right? And it can be difficult to pay attention to themselves. So it's important that they get the self-care that they need in order to regulate themselves. Sometimes you're going to be busy. Sometimes you're going to be overwhelmed. Develop a pattern for self-care. What does that mean for you? Hopefully, it's not something that's going to be destructive like drugs and alcohol. Some people do go to that, but you do have to be stronger. A support network is going to be your best option. You can use a therapist, you can get a life coach, and you can begin how to develop a self-care routine. What does that mean for you? And you might need to get a babysitter. You might need to develop a, a routine that's going to work for you and the child, but there's always a way. There's always an option. Self-care should not be second to your child. It should be first. I understand many parents, they want to give everything to their child and then they have nothing left. But in order to be the best parent, I find that if you're 100% all the time or most of the time, you're going to have the best child. So self-care for parents is critical because it's going to help you be a better parent. Then we get into step 15, celebrating achievements. Now, this one is going to be, again, unique to everyone. There is a video I saw just recently of a family. And this family didn't have a lot of money. It was a store-bought cake that they made in their oven and it got some frosting and put some sprinkles on it. And so there was a tradition, I think, in a Brazil culture that the first piece of cake that you give to somebody is the person you love the most or you care for the most. And so this young man, maybe 10 years old, nine, 10 years old, something along those lines, he gives the cake to his brother. And his brother is like four. And the brother starts crying. And he was just so happy that his brother gave him the first piece of cake because he understood the tradition. And in our life, we sometimes don't see those small moments as something powerful. When a child graduates kindergarten or pre-K, we do like a whole graduation ceremony. We put them on a pedestal and we say, this is good. This is great. From there, they love going to school typically. And They're trying to be the best student they can be. They feel smart. They feel loved. They feel appreciated. They can see their achievements starting to come to life. Maybe the next achievement is going to be when they graduate eighth grade or if they have a basketball game and they win or something like that. Those are achievements. So we celebrate them. They remember those achievements. No matter what age, they're going to remember them. We graduate we succeed, we have our successes, we celebrate them. Now, achievements just don't have to be a moment in time. It could be something that is like a goal. A goal can be achieved at any moment. For example, maybe you finally are able to do a handstand. You celebrate that achievement. And that right there is going to help that child foster more confidence in themselves and be more ambitious to try new things. And that is what we want to foster. Children who are not afraid to fail, children who seek achievement in a positive way, and then children who can appreciate that achievement for what it is, not just a moment, but a stepping stone for something better. And then we get into step number 16, encouraging creativity. 
Now, creativity is one of those things that are stripped at a young age because we're telling kids to sit in a desk or sit at a desk and only raise your hand when you need to go to the bathroom or if you have a question or if you want to answer the question. That right there is stripping away their childhood imagination. So if the schools are built to take away creativity and imagination, how can we foster creativity and imagination as parents? Well, we do have to provide artistic uh, creative outlets. Maybe that's going to art classes, maybe doing dance. Sports can be creative in some aspects, in some regards. You want to create that encouraging environment. So if they make you a picture or something, you put it on the fridge. You don't just kind of throw it away. That right there is going to celebrate them in a unique way because they're going to maybe make a monster. Oh, this one is a scary monster, huh? And they might say, oh, no, that's not a scary monster. He's actually smiling and go, oh, okay, I didn't see it because they might see it as, oh, there's things that are scary, but they can be nice also. And that correlates to a mindset in adults of there can be challenges in life, but after you do the challenge, it becomes rewarding. So it's a small correlation, but it can be the connector that is going to be the connector to mindsets as an adult. So creativity has so much more power than we give it any credit for. Your purpose, your passion, your gift, the things that you should be doing, you should be creative in them. And if you're doing something where you have zero creativity, where you have no ambition, you're most likely in the wrong area. So you do have to figure out sometimes when you're going through that purpose mission as a parent or as an adult, where I was as a kid, where I was as a child. And if you can have children that are more curious and more creative, they're going to be more successful as adults. That is what statistics have shown. And that is what I have seen. Being creative has a huge advancement as a huge stepping stone to all the other kids, to all the other people that are their peers. So encouraging creativity is going to be an essential step. Then we get into our final step, step 17, respecting individuality. So you might have multiple kids. You might have one or two, three or four, right? If you have one, you might compare them to other kids around like Bobby's being good. Why are you not being good? Or if you have, uh, you know, more than one, you have two, you're like, your sister never did this. So you're comparing them to someone else, but they're their own unique being. A child is born with 400, around 400, maybe plus neurological pathways. All right. And that has to be unique. They're not going to be the same. That's why children as young as one or two months, they have their own personality. Some are very needy. Some are just super like, hey, I'm chill. I'm good. Right? Sometimes people say your first or your second child can be the good or the bad child. And the reason they're saying is that the personality is different. So you might have had a hard time with your first child. They're always crying in the middle of the night. And it was something that you had to deal with. Maybe that happens with your second child. And you start to think, oh, you know, like this didn't happen with my first child. Something's wrong with this one. No, they're being their own individual selves. And that just compounds as they grow up. You might have a child who's dancing in the middle of the classroom. You're not supposed to be dancing in the middle of the classroom, but we respect it. We understand that that's their individuality shining through. And so we don't necessarily shun it. We might correct it, but not in a way that's going to say that what you're doing is wrong. You should be like everyone else. We're not trying to create cogs in the wheel. We're not trying to create mimics of children to child. Everyone should be alike. You have a unique child. They're one of a kind and they should be treated like that. If you have a one of a kind baseball card or one of a kind antique car or a one of a kind tea set, you're going to make sure nothing happens to it. So why do we not make sure nothing happens to our kids? Why don't we not make sure that we allow that child to be exactly who they are and embrace them for what they are? Because that is going to create wealth. Because if you have a one of a kind car or a teapot or pottery, whatever, that right there is valuable. You bring it to an antique dealer, an appraiser, they're going to say, I've never seen anything like this before. Of course, this is one of one, one of a kind. So don't allow a child to be stripped of value because you want them to be like everyone else. If your child wants to go in a different direction, you embrace that as long as it be positive and healthy and nurturing and conducive and constructive for a better well-being and a better life. What does that mean? 
it means that if you are doing your process and raising the best child possible, you need to make sure that you know what is going to happen as the end result. Now, the end result is going to be exactly what you think it is. You want that child to be happy and effective in the real world. It doesn't happen overnight. It happens through process of educating yourself, educating your child, and understanding that as a parent, things change, moments change. Sometimes it's not going to be easy to make those changes. Sometimes it's going to be a lot of hard work. And I always tell parents, if you're struggling to be an effective parent, if you're struggling in areas of your child's life, if you find that your child is not being the best that they can be, you might have to look at some of your values. You might need coaching first, but then we can look at your child's life too. I always tell parents, head over to RevanConcepts.com, look at what we can do for you and your child. And begin that process because you can be having the next Benjamin Franklin, the next Albert Einstein, the next Beethoven, the next Serena Williams, the next Michael Jordan, the next Kobe Bryant, the next LeBron James, whoever you want. You can be having that. You can be fostering that. But many parents, they just see their child. They might see them for being great for a moment. And if they do something wrong, they see them for doing something wrong. Growing up is not about perfection is about imperfection. We grow and we learn. So in order to make these changes, these 17 steps, learn more at reverconcepts.com, begin that journey, begin that process, because the change that your child needs can happen today. All right. So everyone, again, that was a long one. The guide to effective raising of children is not an easy process. Even though I put it into 17 steps, they could be a hundred steps. I can go on and on and on. And we can look at the different areas and the different situations that you're going in and going through. It's going to be a unique journey. What we talked about today is just the surface level. This is just the tippy top of things that you should know and understand and then implement. Because if you can start to implement this, then you're going to be in a better place later on. Later on, typically parents don't realize that their kids are going to grow up and they're going to look at mom and dad for being a success or a failure. And they're going to look at the failure, not as a mom failed or dad failed, but they're going to say, well, they weren't good in this area. And so they're going to do something which is not conducive to raising effective children. I'm going to give my children the life I never had. It's the worst possible mindsets you can give yourself. If you have that mindset, throw it away. It's not helpful. I understand that your parents might have been really rough, maybe not the best people. I understand. But just because they weren't good or or effective, it doesn't mean that you have to say, I'm going to give my child the life I never had. You should give them the life that built you to be the person you are today. Because if you are doing the work to make sure your child is good, that means you have the right mindset. But many parents are choosing to give their children weak mindsets, which is not conducive to strong, healthy, happy adults later on. So we have to make strong, healthy, happy children as parents. And then they turn into strong, healthy, happy adults, but we do it backwards. We have bad parents who make bad children, who make parents who want to create good children that create bad parents. It is a system, it's a cycle that can be stopped. And the easiest way to stop it is to instill wisdom, is to instill knowledge, is to instill an understanding of what parenting is, how to raise children to some degree, and then to begin to take action today. So if you're a parent, again, you're ready to take action, learn about these steps more, begin to write down your life and say, okay, well, this is where I need to make some improvements. If you're ready and you want some coaching, head over to reverendconcepts.com. If your children are above the age of 16 and they need mentoring and coaching because the foundation that you have built for them is just shot, head over to reverendconcepts.com. Youth mentoring and coaching, that's what they need. It's not something that you can do anymore. As much as I hate to say it is at a certain age, they're going to stop paying attention to you if you didn't pay attention to them at a certain age. So do your best when they're young to make sure that they want to come to you when they're older. And if you don't do it, then you have to pay someone like me to go in and fix the mess. Just as if you don't keep up the maintenance work in your home, you're going to have to pay someone to fix it. So don't be that person. Don't be the person who just allows everything to break and allows everything to pile up to the point where you're overwhelmed. Take action today, piece by piece, bit by bit, 
you can be the best and most effective parent today. Learn how at Reverend Concepts, learn how by jotting these 17 steps down and then beginning the process for you to change your life and your child's life. My name is Michael Reardon. I'm a mindset coach. If you have any questions, you can email me coachingandsession at gmail.com and I'll see everyone on the next episode of Coaching in Session. Until then, everyone take care.